Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Today we have with us Todd DeMonte. He is a force of nature. Uh, I'll read his actual bio in a, in a bit here, but uh, I've known him for quite a while. And I know he has a powerful and clever mind. He asks good questions and thinks deeply and good for us effectively about what he does in the world. So currently, Todd is the Chief Innovation Officer of Madison Indoor Air Quality a Madison Industries business vertical that holds several companies. Todd identifies and leads the development of innovative new product concepts, markets, and solutions across all Madison Indoor Air Quality companies, increasing vitality and driving long-term value creation. Before this, Todd was president and general manager of Thermostore. That's where I met you, Todd. From 2004 to 2019, where he grew where he and his team grew the company's revenue over 600% to large numbers and created over $250 million in enterprise value through innovation in products and markets. Before that, before joining, joining Thermostore, Todd was a business owner and worked as a manager and technician in the automotive business for more than 10 years. During that time, he won awards from Mercedes-Benz Land Rover and for being among the top 15 and top 10 respectively technicians in the U.S., so this is a man who knows how to use his hands and his mind. Todd earned a BS in mechanical engineering from Cornell and an MBA from Tulane. He's been awarded 28 U.S. patents with several more pending. Todd, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Christoph. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. So today, I'm going to introduce the topic, you guys. So the topic today is formicary corrosion and refrigerant leakage in heat exchanger coils. Now, I can tell you as someone who's fairly avid about this topic, that there is scant little out there on the internet. And to some of you listeners, it might sound like it's an in the weeds topic, but it's not. So um, before we get to Todd, let's just briefly unpack the relevance case for formicary corrosion. And I just go in big early. Fundamentally, formicary corrosion is woven in to the current and future health of uh, the geobiosphere, which is another way to say where everything living lives, uh, including us. And of course, the geobiosphere is the is supporting the global human economic system, because we need constantly energy and resources from it. So basically, this is a, that's a roundabout way of saying, we need to stop refrigerant leakage, and we need to switch over to non non greenhouse gas emitting ways of heating and cooling our buildings. These are generally known as the energy transition, and the refrigerant transition. Um, when it comes to energy, I just want a super brief perspective in case it's not clear. We are arriving at the end of humanity's uh, fossil fuel era. Um, we're currently in what's called the mid-transition to powering society by renewables. Um, not a new thing. Human society has gone through other energy transitions from hunter-gatherer to agrarian, from agrarian to fossil. So not a new thing, but it's a big thing. It's a cool time to be alive, really. And then the second one, more directly, is the refrigerant transition, which uh, generally refers to the ongoing shift in 
HVACR, which is heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration industry away from high GWP refrigerants, particularly hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, Kigali agreement. And I just want to be very clear, these times are upon us with the refrigerant transition. It's next year, 2024, 2030, 2034, 2036. We have big transitions in refrigerants. So for both of these to be successful, which is something humanity needs, we need to get a handle on uh, doing heat pumps effectively in ways that limit greenhouse gas emissions. This means we need to understand and prevent what is commonly called coil leakage. Um, just before we introduce you, Todd, or ask you this question, coil leakage, I just like to call it out, is also um, a tremendous stressor to those of us in the industry, right? It's, it's disruptive for homeowners, it's disruptive for business owners, um, not to mention the greenhouse gas leakage. Okay, so Todd, welcome. Let's start at the beginning. We're talking about coil leakage. Let's start with how would you describe what is a coil in this context? Okay, great question. Um, so a coil is going to be a device that transfers energy from one fluid to another. So in our case with a refrigeration system, we have a refrigerant fluid that's being contained as transferring or releasing its energy, grabbing energy or releasing energy to the airstream it's in. And it does this through tubes or microchannel tubes and fins, right? So we're either going to have a cold coil um, because of the evaporation of a gas inside, uh, a liquid to a gas, or we're going to have a, a warm coil from the condensation of a gas to a liquid. And during that change of state, it's either going to be grabbing energy or releasing energy making it a cold coil or hot coil. Excellent. And it releases, that energy. it releases that energy to the airstream, right? So when you go outside your condensing unit, you put your hand above the fan, it feels warm because it's releasing the energy it grabbed from inside and it releases it outside. And the air inside coming out your supply register is going to be cold because the evaporator inside is grabbing the energy out the airstream and moving it, heat pumping it over to the condenser coil outside. Yeah. Very good. Spoken like a true electrical engineer, oh, excuse me, a mechanical engineer. Bazinga. <laughs> Yeah, that was well done. And um, common example of a coil that like the layperson might know if they haven't taken apart their air conditioner. Um, so, you know, probably the most common is the radiator yeah. in a car, right? So that's the heat exchanger and that radiator, it's, it doesn't involve change of state, uh, but it's hot glycol and water mixture going through uh, a pathway and then air coming across it and the uh, releasing its energy, that heat into the airstream. Right. So radiator is probably the most yeah. common one. Yeah. So like fundamentally, a coil is the business end of a heat exchanger system. Like so anything that's heating or cooling, you're not destroying a fuel and burning something. So chances are very good. Everyone listening, you've used a coil today. Right. If you open the refrigerator, you use the coil. If, if you're in uh, your house right now yeah. and it's either heating or cooling with the heat pump, you're using a coil. Your car air conditioner is a coil. Your computers. Right. Your computers have little heat exchangers in there. Right. Especially if you have like a liquid cool computer, um, you know, it'll take the heat off the chip and put it up to a radiator and pass yeah. air across it too. That's a good way to think about heat. it. Yeah. So data labs, personal computers, big ones, actually, you know, in terms of leakage, um, quickie marks, refrigerated display cases. There's a lot of leakage there um, in general, like commercial refrigeration and the whole, I think it's called the cold chain, right? It's uh, refrigerated transport, trucks, mm -hmm. trains, ships, planes, um, industrial refrigeration. But these, like you go to your um, grocery store 
and you have one of those open top freezer chests, which by the way, that's thermodynamically hard to pull off. <laughs> or your cookie mart, right? Those things go down, they have large refrigerant volumes and uh, it's, it's a problem. So I guess the coil is, is this cylinder, it's this tube of metal and it's conducting metal. You want it thermally conductive because as you say, yeah, so you have fin why you want it thermally conductive. Right? So you want to be able to transfer the heat from the working fluid to the air that's being processed or the air that's blowing through it, right? So, um, you know, there's a few different types of heat exchangers. There's uh, fluid or uh, gas, or liquid to air. There's liquid to liquid. Um, and they're used in different applications, right? So uh, one interesting thing in grocery stores, the refrigerant charge in those freezer rack systems can be like a thousand pounds of refrigerant or more. And so you can imagine what happens if you have a leak there, it's pretty catastrophic, right? You leak out all the refrigerant. So back when refrigerant was very, not very expensive and no one really cared about the ozone layer, we weren't it wasn't using a big it deal. Uh, but back, so back before we got to global warming potential issues with the refrigerants, we had ozone depletion potential. So that was addressed uh, in 2000 is pretty much took that out of the market. But before that, um, when you had a refrigeration leak, all this freon would go up into the atmosphere and it would react with ozone and destroy or break down ozone. Um, really, the larger your system, like in a grocery store, you can get energy efficiencies and it uses it. it okay, so you, the larger the system, more energy efficient. The problem is the larger the system, the more catastrophic the leak is, right? So grocery stores in the past 15 or so years have gone to distributed systems, smaller systems, kind of like you'd see in a submarine where a leak won't be catastrophic, right? So it's these distributed systems, um, not as good of efficiency, can't reclaim as much energy, uh, but much less destructive to the environment if there's a leak, right? So, and that was a change really that's only come into effect at say 2005 to yeah. 2010. And, uh, you know, Walmart's been a big proponent of that mm -hmm. where they can yeah, do it's it. It's all kind of recent current history. So the coils are everywhere. So I'm gonna make that clear to everyone. And yet uh, the leakage is not as well known. I mean, I think people in the industry know about it. And I guess back to your story, because I, I want to get to like where do coils most commonly leak. But you mentioned you know, it's, it's summer day, you're in your you're in your house and you have cool air blowing out of the register, which is air that has had the heat removed. And that heat, you can go outside to the outdoor unit and put your hand over the air coming out and you can feel that extra heat. It's extra hot. So that's where the indoor heat went. It was pumped outside air, the refrigerant back to air. And there are coils in both the indoor and outdoor units, right, Todd? Correct. Yes. And let's not forget the heat you're taking out of the air inside. It's sensible, which is basic temperature that you can feel, and also latent, which is moisture, right? So it's taking out both types of energy, and it's putting, it's converting it to temperature energy, to heat energy outside when you dump yeah, it on the condenser. That's a good point. So the like the water on the outside of a beer mug is has come out of the air because the mug is cold. And so that's energy. It was energy that was in the air, right? It's not the heat, it's the humidity. It's they're both energy. Correct. And so on your indoor coil, it gets water all over it. That water goes down into the drain pan and out through the condensate line. That water is energy, right? It's stored energy. The, the, actually, the energy that was in vapor yes. is gone and now it's liquid. So exactly. are the coils the same size? Are they one, they're one coupled volume, uh, right? It's one system. It's one refrigerant system. Just describe that. I and mean, we don't have. So it's one system that, 
Yeah, so the, the refrigerant system, uh, the evaporator um, historically has been tube and fin uh, because the, the way uh, tube and fin coils can shed water is superior to microchannel or has been considered superior. So the older technology, tube and fin, which is essentially a bunch of U-shaped tubes with fins going, you know, fins connecting them, um, water can run down those fins very easily into a drain pan. Microchannel doesn't quite work the same way. Microchannel has tubes going across and water has a harder time dripping down. But microchannel uses, has a lower volume of refrigerant required, so it's less expensive to use. It's often aluminum, so it's going to be less expensive than copper tubes, and it's actually more efficient. So microchannel coils are essentially better in every way than tube and fin, except tube and fin sheds water mm. in a superior way. So most of the time, I'd say up until 10 years ago, uh, almost all evaporators were still tube and fin. But if you go look at your automobile, your condenser is going to be microchannel. Right. Uh, when you look at your condensers outside your air conditioning system, they're going to be microchannel. And so microchannel is a different look. Um, it's kind of has manifolds on the side, tubes running across it and little like V fins in between those tubes, you know, the, mm -hmm. the channels, essentially. Recently, I'd say in the last five to 10 years, people have been moving to microchannel evaporators to get the lower cost of using aluminum versus copper, uh, better heat transfer. And we've been overcoming ways to uh, shed the water in a more effective way. Got it. Mainly how they're mounted in the case. Um, but I would say that the distribution of refrigerant in a microchannel coil is not as good. It's not as uh, high performance as it is in a tube and fin. So people are still, it's still a work in progress before microchannel evaporators take over completely. Good. Okay. So I've got some questions to walk you through. So first of all, evaporator and condenser are the two coils just for listeners. You know, if, and it, and it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Let me just yeah. explain. So although water is condensing on the evaporator, it's what's going on inside is how the evaporator gets its name. There's a liquid going in the yeah. evaporator and it's evaporating to a gas. And the same thing on the condenser, there's a gas going into the condenser and it condenses yeah, to a liquid. Yeah, it is intuitive because the water's condensing on the evaporator. And so just to remind us, right? So when you have a liquid that goes to a gas, it absorbs heat in that transition. It needs extra heat, extra heat via gas. Right. And it is yeah. getting that heat from the air in your house. That's why it's called evaporator coil. And then as it exactly. gets that heat, it cools the surface and now you have condensation. And just, just to put it like a cherry on top on evaporator condenser, when your heat pump switches from heating to cooling, the evaporator goes outside now and condenser comes Correct. inside. So it's, it gets even more Byzantine. Yeah. Today we're actually, okay, exactly. the next level down is, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the switch from conventional copper coil, tube and fin to aluminum microchannel coils. That's currently what we're talking about. We'll get to the corrosion. You mentioned um, aluminum having some better properties. Uh, one was cost and one was heat transfer. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you get more heat transfer surface area, right? So for the same size coil, only because of the channels. Yeah, it's a it's a more tightly packed heat transfer surface, uh, and it's also another advantage is because it's micro channel instead of having a, a tube where refrigerant is flowing through this tube, which might be five millimeters in diameter. These are micro channels, so these are little tiny tubes. So the coils actually hold 
low, uh, less volume of refrigerant, which helps because we want to keep the refrigerant charge as low as possible right. for costs and also for leaks. If it does leak, it's smaller. Yeah, cost and leakage. Yeah. So just thinking about cross sections, um, but basically the cross section of a, a standard tube would be two concentric circles. Um, uh, no, it's just actually a, so it's a two, it is just a tube. Right. So like if you cut it, in half, it's too, it's, you'd see the, end. oh yeah. Yeah. Well, the thickness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And, and how those are about five millimeters standard. Yeah. I'd say there are five millimeters or seven millimeters. They could be five sixteenths if it's, you know, an older design, if it's still standard units, but I'd say five millimeters, seven millimeter, probably the, the diameter. And then the wall thickness. It's not that great. Um, I would say uh, it's from when we measured and what we spec is probably uh, twenty thousandths. Whoa! And yep. it's not much. Tell me why and it gets thinner as you bend why it, is it, right? Thicker? So it's twenty thousandths, and then when you bend it into a U to make that curve, yeah. you know the outside of the U gets even it's thinner. Stretch how much thinner? Uh, probably about half, down to, uh, you know, probably 10,000. Wow, that is, that is super small, you guys. And, and so it's interesting if you have a refrigerant that the last place you want it is in the sky, you'd think the most important thing would be to not have it leak out. And therefore you want a thicker wall. Why do we want it thin? Well, you want it thin for, well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is obviously cost, right? So you want to have things as light and, uh, mm. as possible, use the least amount of metal as possible. Um, there's probably a benefit of heat transfer, right? For the, the thinner, the thickness, the better heat transfer. And then another thing we do to improve heat transfer is we often rifle the inside of the tubing. So we kind of give a um, notches around it that work around in circles, um, helical circles. And uh, that takes away a little bit of the thickness also, but it does improve heat transfer. And then it, because it improves heat transfer, it improves your efficiency. Right, right. So partly this is... Um... You know, this, the fact that equipment, we all, we all want numbers. We're like number beings, like Pavlo, Pavlo, Pavlov for numbers. So we want the highest sear rating we can get with our air conditioner. And so that means we want the thinnest walls. They're so thin that they're not failing, but they're right on the edge of failing. Um, and you get high. Well, they do. So there are standards, right? So UL and ETL have standards that say these tubes have to match or meet a certain amount of pressure before they pop, right? Or before they break or leak. And so we do those tests, UL does those tests, ETL does those tests, and it either, it can be like a, uh, a multiple or you can have a maximum that you prevent uh, from becoming higher than that maximum with a safety switch that cuts off the compressor, right? So they are designed to a specification to not leak under a certain pressure, but it doesn't give you those thin tubes, don't give you much breathing room for corrosion, right? So corrosion doesn't have to go too far to get through mm -hmm. that surface. Yeah, and possibly some mechanical wear and tear. I mean, like just going back to the top, like something I didn't talk about, like the, from, from my experience, I would guess that the biggest three leakage points are capillary tubes, which, which aren't even everywhere, flare, and they're just small and fragile and they leak, flare fittings, which degrade over time or aren't done right, they leak. But then the biggest one are evaporator coil leaks. And yeah. Actually, I'm still working and my way down the, the aluminum. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Okay, yeah. yeah. We would make your comment. I was just going to say the, vex the vexing part is some of those failure modes are from manufacturing deficiencies Ooh. and design deficiencies. Other of those failure modes are caused from the environmental issues. And 
in house A and house B, you might have the exact same product and house B has repeated failures and house A does not, right? So that's what's so difficult for the manufacturers is they say, how is this our fault when only house B is causing these failures? House A doesn't. It's the exact same product to the exact same specifications. Yeah. Okay. So I, I really want to go there and I can bring you back. So manufacturer coils okay. and environmental issues, that's the core of this topic. But I want to, I just want to make sure we round out the understanding of how we sure. switched from conventional tube and fin to microchannel coils when we switched from copper to aluminum. Could you just please unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So everybody, you know, if we look back at the Model T, we've got an, a, a copper radiator with copper fins and it's got super heat transfer. Copper is a super tough metal. You can bend it. It doesn't break. It's great. Now, the problem is it's heavy. It costs a lot of money. Um, and so we're, we're constantly trying to find ways to improve things. And you fast forward to today, today's cars are going to have a microchannel radiator, right? So a microchannel radiator is going to be lighter, less metal, better heat transfer. So it's better in every way. The problem is when we get over on the refrigeration side. So, you know, your car's uh, coolant system is only operating on 15 to 20 PSI of pressure. Mm -hmm. Your refrigeration system is dealing with, you know, up to 450 PSI, right? So it's a, it's a much higher pressure system. So on your higher pressure system, we need to make sure that, you know, that these heat exchangers can, uh, you know, handle the pressure and not leak. Microchannel does a great job. Uh -huh. uh, microchannel, because it's better in every way, except for shedding water, was an obvious step for people to move or manufacturers to move to the condenser, right? Because the condenser stays dry. Not so obvious on the evaporator side. Okay, so the condenser outside, um, on conventional units is can be attacked by other environmental uh other environmental issues like salt you know so like seawall or sea air yeah. attacks aluminum in a different way than copper but in our world where we're making dehumidifiers at thermostore the the condenser is sitting back there in the unit inside uh only seeing filtered air filtered dry air and really we have like 0.0001 percent failure rate i mean it's like 20,000 to one, the failure rate from a condenser to an evaporator uh, when you're dealing with a dehumidifier. And that's even when they're copper coils. That's even with copper coils, yeah. And I don't, I don't, I'm not even really familiar of any leaks on the microchannel condensers on dehumidifiers. I mean, they're that bulletproof. That's fascinating. And, and are they manufactured the same way? Uh, it's the same vendors. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at the coil manufacturer and you say, this is your fault when you have a coil leak, uh, they say, well, why is it that for every thousand condensers that are built on tube and fin condensers that are built right next to the tube and fin evaporators on the same line, why is it that we have zero failures on the condensers and you have a 5% failure rate or whatever it is on the evaporators? They say it's not our fault. We're making the coils exactly the same. It's environmental. It's a customer's fault, right? So there's a lot of um, you know finger pointing and ultimately it's who's ever selling the finished good has to t make it right for the customer, right. you know, so the, the vendors uh, are quick to say it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let, let's, let's keep going down this. We're, we're going to unpack these issues separately, uh, manufacturer coil and environmental issues. So on the manufacturing side, um, well, first of all, like don't say anything that's like NDA here, <laughs> but okay. are there a handful of manufacturers worldwide that are selling coils to most of the end uses that we know of? How does that work? Uh, that's a good question. I would say there are a handful of manufacturers 
Um, many of the OEMs make the coils themselves okay. also. It's not that difficult. I would say in automotive, it's probably pretty much all outsourced to, to suppliers. In HVAC, I've seen where they're making coils in-house. Okay. Right? So I, I think it's both. It's not that difficult. It's, you know, we've been doing it. We've been doing tube and fin for over 100 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's a pretty well-known uh, process. Okay. Well, that's good. Could you, this might be a tough one on a podcast, but could you describe the manufacturing process and, and then if there's been any changes along the way? Sure. Okay. So tube and fin, it starts off with a uh, tube, right? So tube comes on a big coil. It goes through a machine and straightens out the coil to straight copper. Uh, the copper is then cut to a certain length, which would be about twice the length of the coil. Then it's bent in a U. Uh, then these U's are put on a fixture and fins are dropped over these U's, right? So now you've got, I don't know, 20 U-bent, U-shaped piece of copper tubing, coil fins that are punched, drop over this, kind of like a deck of cards falling down onto these U's uh, tubes that are sticking up. Uh, you load up the coil with the fin pack and then you put a bullet through or you, uh, you pull um, an extrusion device through the tube and that expands the tube, right? So it kind of looks like a bullet, so it's got little angles. You pull it through and expands the copper so it stretches it, so it has really tight contact to the fins now. So the fins were a little bit loose and jiggly when you put them on, you you pull the the bullet through and expands the tube and now you've got good fit. A slightly newer version of that is they actually pressurize the tubes and then they uh, have a better fit supposedly, right? So part of this formicary corrosion theory is the bullet extrusion doesn't give you perfect contact between the fin and the and the tube and because you don't have perfect contact water can get in there and you know start formicary corrosion which we'll get to mm. supposedly pressurizing uh the, the copper tubes so they kind of pop all at once to have good contact with the with the fins that is supposedly reduces formicary corrosion significantly. Then once you have extruded or you pulled the bullet through and now you have good contact between the fins and the tubes, little U-bends are put on the other ends of the tubes that are open and that creates a circuit, right? And then peep, then those are brazed on usually by hand, sometimes by machine. Interesting. Uh, so now you have a, a tube or now you have a fin, a fin and tube evaporator. Those then go through an oven because there's assembly lube that's used to make all the stuff go on smoothly and to pull things through. Uh, there are spots in the early days with former carry corrosion that the assembly lube was a problem. Assembly lube back in the old days, probably in the early 2000s, was probably very bad for the environment, but flashed off very nicely. So you could spray it on and five minutes later, it's completely gone with no residue. Well, things that do that are not good for the environment right. with, with low boiling points. So you use a less good lubricant, which then it doesn't flash off, leaves, you know, potentially leaves surface contamination on the copper, which was a leading theory for a while about why formicary corrosion was occurring on the outside of the copper. Um, then it, then uh, after we are finished assembly, we put it into an oven. We put it in an oven for a certain amount of time to bake off the remaining lubricant, mm. right? And so we're kind of flashing it off there. Hopefully we're capturing or burning the bad stuff so it's not going to the atmosphere. And then at the end, you have a finished coil. It gets pressure tested, uh, sometimes underwater, sometimes just with nitrogen. Sometimes there's 
quality inspection where every coil goes underwater. So they put little fixtures on the in and the out tubes. They pressurize it up. It goes on a conveyor belt underwater and someone sits there and looks for bubbles. Uh, other times they actually pressurize it and can watch like if there's any type of decay on the, the coil itself after it's been manufactured for a certain amount of time. Then once it passes those quality tests, it gets boxed up and shipped to the manufacturers. That was awesome. By the way, you guys, that right there is what you can't find on Google. Um, just, just a couple of questions. Um, okay. One yeah. is this oven, this uh, bake-off, this oven process. How is that done? Like, it's you don't put it in an oven. It's like a conveyor belt still. The oven's... It's a conveyor belt. Yeah, it's a conveyor belt. And it's, um, you know, the time is based on the conveyor belt speed. And they run it through the oven to meet a certain spec. I've been skeptical in the past with certain second or third tier vendors that because it's hard for a manufacturer to know if that step has been taken, does that step always get taken? Right. So there was a lot of theories in the early days, in the early 2000s, especially when people were outsourcing to China or Asia in general, that that step is being shortcut in some type of way. And that was leading to the increase in formicary corrosion failures because we weren't getting rid, you know, so when we went from right. the assembly lubes that flashed off easily to the assembly lubes that don't flash off anymore, now we have to kind of bake them out. And baking, you can imagine running an oven costs energy. You know, if I look at a coil before I put it in the oven and look at it after I put it, after it comes out the oven, it kind of looks the same. <sighs> so anyone doing a visual inspection can't tell, right? So there's a lot of theories back about that back in the day. Um, we've kind of been able to uh, negate that theory or neutralize that theory because we, we've added another step uh, back around 2012 where we would take the coil after it's done, we would then ship it to another vendor and it gets an acid wash. So that acid wash would then remove any of the assembly lube. Then it goes through another oven to dry, oh, then it goes through a rinse, then it goes through an oven to dry it, and then it gets e-coated, right? So the e-coat, um, one of the parts of e-coating is this acid wash. And we really felt like that was doing double duty, prepping it for the e-coating and also potentially getting rid of any of the assembly lube that might have still been on the coil. Right, right. And yet there was another oven step in your yes, exactly. issue. Yeah. What about um, yes. just something simple like uneven heat distribution in the oven, like the coils are back? Exactly, right? So, yeah. yeah, so if you've got coils four wide and, uh, you know, maybe the two outer coils are getting the heat from the, the flames in there and the two inside are being insulated a little bit, and they may not be getting it all the way through, right? So there's lots of variability, um, and that variability can affect quality, obviously. Right. And those ovens, those coil baking ovens, are, are those like DIY, or are there manufacturers that distribute those worldwide? Well, when you look at them, it kind of looks like the gates of hell, right? So you're looking down this little hole with, a, with a, a, an assembly line, you know, a, a belt going through there, and I mean, it's literally flames you know, coming up in there and heating it up. So it's wow. So it's not it's just heat; direct, it's actual flame. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, like a direct fired oven, and it's uh, it looks pretty intimidating. Yeah, <laughs> but you can imagine. It, I mean, how do you control for that, right? And uh, I think there's a lot of trial and error, and you know, if people are behind schedule and trying to crank things up. I mean, it has cascading effects on quality. Yeah. Okay, I got two more. Or two yeah. more. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Thank you for taking us through this. So you mentioned you're pulling a bullet through the tube to lock in the fin packs. And I understand you're, you're right. expanding so, um, the, you know, you're leveraging the fact that copper is ductile and it's expanding, but that bullet, it's going through straight tube and it's going around those U-bends, right? 
Exactly. Yes. Yes. Like, it seems like there'd be different physics and the U-bends were already thinner and they've got this thing trying to do a U-turn. Any issues there? Uh, well, that's a good question. You know, what, what we've seen is it kind of smushes down the rifle tubing part. Okay. Right. So uh, what it's what it's taking that hard corner. And if the bullet isn't too long, um, you know, it's easier to make that corner. You know, you certainly don't want a three inch bullet going through <laughs> uh, a one and a half inch radius. Right. Because it, it won't make it. Okay. Right. So it's not it's not that long, but it does. I mean, it does smush things down. The, you know, you could rationalize pretty reasonably that there's not that much heat transfer going on in the U-bends anyway. Really, the majority of the heat transfer is going on in the straight part of the tube. Where the right, fins I guess. Are. Yeah, and we can get to this later. Like, if all the leakage were occurring at those thin U bends um, with smushed rifling, that would have been a ha ha. But I'm guessing it's not. But before yeah. we go there, well, well, yeah, let me just say before ecoat, before we ecoated, I would say probably a third of a third of failures that we saw were on those U bends. Hmm. Ecoat essentially has 100% solved the U bend issue. So e-coat when properly applied, and you know it's pretty straightforward to apply an e-coat to just a bare piece of copper, it completely solved any leaks, any form of any kind of corrosion leaks on those U-bends. It doesn't occur anymore. Wow, that's good news. I'm going to bring you back to that though, because very basic thing. I think it was the first or second word you said copper coil. So copper. There's an element copper, but when we buy copper, it's not just elemental copper. It's a mixture of, of different metals. Yes. I imagine that you or someone has been thoughtful about analyzing what's in the various copper that's used, copper samples, copper, copper types, anything there? We have. That was another leading theory that um, we were getting substandard copper. Hmm. Um, there's a certain ASTM standard for copper for refrigeration for refrigeration tubing, um, and it's pretty much you have to be 99.9 percent minimum of copper. Yeah. And yeah. you know we thought this was going to be obviously the reason we we're having this trouble. And we've sent out samples, we've tested them, we've tried lots of vendors. Who's ever doing the copper tubing is doing it right because. Our worst sample ever has been 99.95% hmm. pure copper. So, you know, I was thinking this is obviously it, poor quality, but it appears that the, the raw material people of copper are doing it right, right? So there's a, a history uh, of, of quality there, and it's that wasn't the problem. But we definitely checked it, right? Because I was thinking, you know, we're going to have grain issues in the copper. We're going to have contaminants in the copper. We're going to have voids in the copper that really wasn't the case. Okay. Like another related question though. So it's mostly copper. It's at least 99.9 .9, and you said 99.95 or four was the lowest you'd seen. Yep. So that, that other 0 0.03, 0 0.05, could it be there's added, there's ingredients, there's elements in there that are um, like reactive with copper or somehow reactive with the refrigerant? Well, what we're most concerned about are contaminant materials creating mm. voids where cracks can right. start, right? Uh, so really, if we look at, you know, I've got a report I just pulled up, you know, the, the contaminant metals are iron, zinc, lead, tin, nickel, aluminum, manganese, silicon, phosphorus. Phosphorus is the number one by far. That's the number mm -hmm. one pollutant. And that's at, on average, I'd say it's point. Oh, three percent. Right. So it's it's not very much. We haven't been able to connect the dots to say it's always the phosphorus 
uh, contaminant that's causing leaks. We haven't been able to do that in any way, okay. shape, or form. Fascinating. I love this. Okay, before we go into um, the e-code process, you've been using the word we. I just want to go back to that. Um, who's we? So I would say we, in general, has been thermostore. Not society, so, not um, humans or something. Not, okay. So I guess sometimes I might be using it. If I'm talking about like Model Ts and Model As, it's probably uh, society in general. Uh, but if it's dehumidifiers and I use we, it's, it's going to be okay. thermostore. Yeah, and just for listeners to be clear that dehumidifiers, they don't switch this evaporator uh, condenser coil. There's a dedicated condenser, a dedicated evaporator, because they're always cooling to dry. Okay, so, right. wow, that's actually quite impressive that, you know, a relatively small company like thermostore, now it's part of a much larger company, but still, you are doing, you all, you plural, are doing a lot of investigation. It seems like this, you know, just thinking from the outside in, it seems like this is an industry level issue that would have like, I don't know, an ASTM committee studying coil failures and, you know, ductile metals or um, it, it just, that's not a question, but is it like, is Mitsubishi doing their own analysis and Thermostore doing their own analysis and American Standard? You know, from what I've heard, what I've heard, yes, hmm. uh, there's probably NDAs involved around any type of settlements that have occurred. Um, so really, this is all held Got close it. to the so there are multiple parallel efforts to sleuth out formicary corrosion. And they're they're kind of the information flow is somewhat restricted because if you do figure it out, you don't want to tell people because then they'll figure it out, too. Interesting. Yeah, I think we're all coming to the same conclusion, which I won't let the cat out yeah, of the bag now. But well, yeah, sure and, we'll you know, to be clear, discussion. like you work for Madison Industry, I want you to be careful on this podcast not to say something that's going to have their attorneys call me. Well, we're we're not going to be the first ones coming to the okay, solution. Good. Okay, so yeah, maybe it's this, maybe it's this e code process now. Um, well, actually, I'm not clear on this. This e code process where you, you're you're trying to negate or neutralize the baking issue um, and you do it through an acid wash. You, you mentioned acid wash rinsing. That's an interesting thing right there. And then putting it back into an oven and then e-coating it. Could you just take us through that? Those four steps, acid wash, rinse, oven, e-coat. Okay. So um, unfortunately our coil manufacturers or in general coil manufacturers do not do e-coating. It's a different type of okay. manufacturer. So it gets loaded up into boxes, right? It goes to the e-coder. Huh. The e-coder, you know, puts these back on a conveyor belt. And there are multiple e-coders? I'm sorry to interrupt. There are, and really like, uh, and there's multiple e-coat vendors, right? So are we getting the, the real e-coat or are we getting a knockoff e-coat, right? So we specify a certain e-coat from a top-of-the-line chemical wow. manufacturer, right? So we don't right. want Okay, man, while I'm interrupting you, I'm, I'm going to bring you back to it, but... This is, I'm taking in a lot, and I imagine listeners are taking in a lot too. Are we e-coding copper coils, or are we e-coding aluminum coils? That's a great question. <laughs> are we e-coding both? Well, I mean, are you, are you going to wear a belt, or are you going to wear suspenders, or are you going to put both on? A lot of times, we'll put both on, right? So we, uh, because a microchannel coil, which is all aluminum, is susceptible to other types of outside-in corrosion many that were not experts for the past decade or past 20 years in. So in order to minimize risk, right, we would, you know, to me, if we're going to, if this coil could be wet, right, because a key component of this type of corrosion is, or corrosion mm -hmm. is having it wet. 
So it's good insurance. I think I probably have this debate with the engineers once a month. Is it worth it or not? On the aluminum specifically. In general, probably. I mean, the engineers the engineers want to get rid of it. They, they. Uh, I would say in general, the engineers say the acid wash is all we need. It's, it's like, it's but how thermally we... still fine when it leaves the plant, when it leaves your factory, it's fine. Exactly. Right. Well, I mean, we can do and, leak and tests. It's not leaking. Either, yeah. um, when we assemble and we can, we can pick out like a 10th of an ounce leak over five oh, years. Lord. So it's not leaking when it leaves the plant. I mean, that that's, it's the, I mean, that's the crazy part. Yeah. That's what drives everyone. You know, it's, it's so vexing, right? It's like such a conundrum is yeah. it's environmental yeah, factors. Okay. So back, back to the e-code, you take your coils, they go, go off to the e-coder, they put them on a conveyor. What happens next? Exactly. So it goes on a conveyor, it gets in an acid bath, right? So it goes into an acid bath, it comes out, it gets rinsed, um, and then it goes in an oven again to dry it out, and then it gets e-coated. So e-coating essentially is when you, it's kind of like a powder coating where you connected the uh, the, the piece you want to e-coat to, to something electrical, and you have a powdered, ionized, High quality, top of the line material, paint, I guess, or coating <laughs> that then adheres because of the, the dissimilar charge and it adheres to like one or two molecules thick, right? So it's a very even and thin coating. And then we bake that coating on there also, right? So then after it gets e coated, it goes into an oven again and gets baked so just on. Just a couple of molecular layers have proven to be extremely effective at preventing yeah. leaks. Correct. Well, I would say I've proven to be extremely effective when properly applied. It's always properly applied on the U-bends, and therefore we never have seen leaks on the U-bends again. That is fascinating. Okay. And so now, now we can kind of go back to, well, let me just ask you before we move on to environmental, is there anything else about the manufacture of coils that's of interest? Anything with the with the way the heat exchanger fins are attached, difference between aluminum and copper there? So, so each of the manufacturers have different fin treatments, right? So you want to, it's not just a flat piece of metal. A lot of times there's little uh, no. edges bent into it. And what metal little, is it, um, by the way? Are those all? Little surfaces. It's, okay. usually, it's usually aluminum. And then... Just because of the cost. Now right? you have, so you have a copper coil out. with aluminum fins and then you have dissimilar metals. You could have some galvanic. Yeah, you do have dissimilar metals, but um, we really don't see a problem with that. I mean, we see a dissimilar metal problem in other areas, but not on this at all. Okay, fascinating. Co copper, is a, a, copper is great, except that it gets attacked by former gray corrosion. I mean, if we could, we could make everything out of copper. I mean, copper is great to combine tubes together for brazing. It's great for heat transfer. It's great how tough it is, how ductile it is, like you're saying. It's great, except when it gets wet in certain environments, it can corrode from the outside in, which we call formic air corrosion. Good, good, okay. So now we're going to go over, you know, I love the fact that you've made it so clear what a conundrum it is. I mean, people that work in this industry, it is, it is a deep pain, a deep riddle. It's like it haunts you. What is going on? And homeowners, right? Certain homes, like all the coils will fail, right? And yeah. So I, I've had theories. I mean, what, what kind of chemistry 
are these people doing in their home to have coils fail every nine months? And why, how can they be breathing this and not be going to yeah. the hospital? Right. Um, you know, we thought for a while it was, uh, I guess, great, you know, before cannabis was legalized, we we're like, oh, well, this is all the people mm-hmm. growing cannabis in their homes. Yeah. But that's what we get, you know, so there's lots of theories, you know, there's theories that if a, if a dehumidifier is in a crawl space and people are storing their paint in a crawl space and the paint lid isn't on, right? So it's off gassing uh, these chemicals out of paint or turpentine or whatever it is. You know, there's all these theories. One theory we believe, and I, and I was just before our podcast here, I was reading up on it. it the more air changes, which, which then drive dilution of any type of concentration of potentially harmful chemicals in the air, it does seem like dilution and air changes reduces forbicary corrosion. All right. And in fact, we have, we have dehumidifiers that work in a bunch of different environments. And the ones we see have the least amount, almost no formicary corrosion, are the ones that are moved from house to house 10 times over a year to uh, address floods, right? Or water leaks or whatever it is. So um, our portable equipment that goes from house to house rarely, if ever, sees a formicary corrosion incident. Much more common are uh, a dehumidifier that's sitting in like mm-hmm. a grow room with cannabis where it's the same air over and over and the concentrations of these pollutant chemicals never gets diluted because you're never bringing in fresh air or like in a crawl space, yeah. same thing where a crawl space is sealed up. The dehumidifier is grinding away on that same air year in and year out. And essentially with the water being condensed on the coils, you're washing those chemical pollutants onto the copper coil. And if it doesn't go down the drain, it sits there on the, the tube and fin and, um, you know, starts working its way, trying to get through that eco to corrode things. I love it. Okay. So listeners, you heard it here. If you want to prevent formicary corrosion, another good reason, that is another good reason to ventilate your home without. Well, just think if it's, if it's, if it's corroding copper, do you really want to breathe that in? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So back to the, you, you mentioned cannabis chemicals, paint stored in crawl spaces. Let's just start with cannabis. Is that, like is something you're suspecting? Is there any positive correlation? Any any more crunch to that statement? So what we believe and what we've tested is carboxyl acids, and the main ones are formic and acetate, acetic acid. Basic acids, extremely common in all types of organics and chemical products. Mm. They off gas, they're floating around as, you know, in gas phase and they essentially um, get washed onto the coil. The compressor stops at some point when it hits its set point, the coil is still wet, the water evaporates and what leaves behind is the impurities in that water, which are those chemicals that were in a gas phase and now they're sitting on top of your coil tube and fin area in your, in your, you know, your evaporator. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's our leading theory of what's happening, I would say. Yeah. And so organic material is leading to formic acid and carb and acetic acid. Carboxyl. Yeah, carboxyl. Yeah. Wood is an yep. organic material. Like so that, that that's formaldehyde, formic acid just from wood products. Is that is that another correlation? 
It could, you know, it could be from stains, right? It could be, you know, we definitely see it from the nutrients in cannabis. Okay, good. Okay, so it could be, it could also be soil gas, right? It could be coming out of the ground from, uh, you know, in your crawl space. Uh Yeah, it's fascinating to know that how deeply you guys have thought through this whodunit mystery. So, um, paints, crawl space, the crawl space, it would be there'd be lots of solvents, chemicals, um, low air changes. So, sounds like you would nod your head and say, yeah, that's, that's a possible correlation. Yes. We believe so. Yes. Yeah. I've also heard, I've, I've seen that. Please. Yeah. I'm just going to say, I've seen that in third party writing about form of care corrosion also that dilution is uh, one of the ways that is believed to minimize it. That's good to know. And that could correlate to this other one I've heard. I mean, lots of, uh, at a very basic level, people say, oh, it's all the homes that have spray foam. Um, spray polyurethane foam insulation, which helps improve the air barrier. That's the problem for coils. Some, something reacting with SPF, spray right. polyurethane. Yes, exactly. Have you heard that as well? And, and you can see, well, you, yeah, exactly. You, you can see there's two facets to that too, right? Foam insulation is going to reduce the amount of dilation from natural leakage. And it's also probably off-gassing something at some point, Right. You know, we had a problem with Chinese drywall. I don't know if you remember yeah. back in the 2005 to 2008, you know, that was attacking copper, right? So, and I believe that was, uh, you know, a phosphorus coming out mm-hmm. of the, the drywall. Yeah. Okay. So phosphorus, yeah. other materials. Yeah. So polyurethane itself is fairly inert. Like it's like a fluffy bowling ball on your, on your walls and roof, but then there's blowing agents and Agents, exactly. and all sorts of chemicals added to keep the lines clear. Yeah. So I mean, just sort of kind of a gut check, yes or no. Do you think there's a correlation? Like, like if you want to do everything you can to reduce formicaric corrosion on your evaporator coil, do you say, you know, I'd prefer to have no spray foam. And of course there's other reasons you might say no spray foam. I don't think we've had enough research on that to to say yes i don't think we can okay. say that you know i've got we might have some anecdotal stories one way or the other um the one that definitely rings true is ventilation mm-hmm. so fresh air ventilation is definitely a big yeah. issue a, a big player okay that's a fair answer yeah yeah i can say it's extremely anecdotal just you know my company my career um yeah there, there's been no positive correlation that all the coil failure prone homes are spray foam enclosures, you know, and, and just to make it a little more and, you know, sneaky, we're learning a lot about the indoor microbiome and, you know, which is basically chemical molecules in the air and the dominant source of the indoor microbiome are the humans living in there. <laughs> so it could be that there's like some human microbiome with microbial metabolites yep. getting in the air off of this certain person or type of people that lead to form carry corrosion failures. Like this person moves from house to house and causes all this. So, you know, that, that reminds me, another thought we had was, and this is back around 2017 or 2018 is if we could just put carbon filtration on all of our products, we would catch all these gas phase pollutants and protect our coil. So when we were acquired by Madison industries, one of our sister companies became Purifil which is a, uh, a national world leader in gas phase capture, yeah. molecular fil- filtration. And so we did a test where we were putting silver and copper coupons 
that they provide into our dehumidifiers in the worst locations we were aware of, right? Something that fails every nine months. And we were going to have their lab check out what type of corrosion this is. And they could tell you like, what is the, the corrosive molecule that's attacking us? So we did this, we put it in, the coil fails, we pull the unit out and we send the two copper, we send the copper and the silver coupons in for analysis and they show up no corrosion. Oh. So what we realized then without a shadow of a doubt is you also need water. So the fact that those corrosive agents were in the air, they were not corroding the, the challenge coupons in the airstream because we put them right behind the filter because there was no water involved, right? So it's, it's really that yeah. effect of the water condensing on the surface and then the water evaporating when the, com when the compressor's off and leaving behind that corrosive agent. That's what's key. And so we did this whole year and a half test that we were sure was gonna solve this once and for all. And it came back as no corrosion at all on the copper and silver oh, coupons. Oh, heartbreaking. Um, could you describe coupons a little bit there? So a coupon is just essentially a, a, a test piece of metal, probably one inch by three inches. And uh, you know, it's perfect silver or it's perfect copper. And we go in and Purifil supplies these and they're the world's experts in this uh, for testing gas phase corrosion. And we were gonna solve it once and for all. We put these coupons in our, a bunch of units. Uh, we sent out the units to the worst locations we were aware of. You know, after a while we get to know these homeowners because they've got issues, right? They came to us after a dehumidifier that they didn't buy from us had failed five or six times. They came to us and it still failed because there's something going on in that environment. So we're working with, you know, so we've got some BFFs out there who want to solve the problem along with us. And we were sure this silver and copper coupon test was going to solve it. And it came back as, uh, you know, no additional information. The insight was water had to be present. You had to drip the water on the surface and then evaporate the water. And our testing didn't do that. Hmm. Fascinating. And that's another thing that's difficult, right? Is some of this testing takes at minimum yeah. nine months. At maximum, it could take four years, right? So you've got to set up test plans and follow through on this. And you're making incremental decisions and judgments based off, you know, the, you know this is the fog of war is what we call it, right? It's like, we, we just got to make best decisions on what we know. And, uh, you know, we have hypotheses and then we try and disprove them. And right, what we're talking about now is like what we've kind of like zeroed in on, but it still isn't 100% solved. But like I said, the whole industry is going to, in one direction here, which is for better, for worse, moving away from copper to aluminum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're getting toward where we can just go ahead and start doing the punchline. So, and that's really fascinating, uh, frankly, that we understand so much. So, formicary corrosion. And I suppose, given what you just said, it's an important punchline, right? That the whole industry is moving away from copper coils to aluminum coils. That means we're going to be talking about formicary corrosion on aluminum coils. Is that but it won't be called formicary corrosion, right? So formicary corrosion is a specific type of corrosion ah. to copper. So there's going to be other failure modes or other corrosion issues with. Oh, so are we saying we we give up? We can't solve formicary corrosion. We're going to go to a material. I would say, yeah, and I and I and believe me, I've gone to like the Copper Institute and said, what what are we doing here? How, how are you letting the entire industry move away from your product? And um, you know, they said, well, th th their fix was pressurizing the tubes as opposed as opposed to extruding the bullet through. But, you know, it's like, it's still, 
it still is an issue. So, you know, we are now in the process. Uh, you know, we have a refrigerant change that's being mandated that we have has to be in effect by 2025, beginning of 2025. And we are now moving. We've got a few of our designs or products already with aluminum microchannel evaporators. And, um, you know, I think we're going to be moving there over the next three years as we redesign our entire product line for the new uh, refrigerants. That is fascinating. Yeah. So interestingly, this podcast on formicary corrosion is actually now turning into a podcast on aluminum microchannel evaporators because we've given up. <laughs> and, and let me say here, this is the part just to make sure it's clear for everybody yeah. who's listening. Formicary corrosion is outside in corrosion. So when people think there's a failure, they're like, oh, well, what's wrong? Why did this leak out? Well, it leaked out because a corrosive agent, some type of formic or acetic acid, burrows itself into and corrodes the copper from the outside in, right? So when you have outside in, now everybody in the whole supply chain says, well, it's obviously not my fault. You know, coil manufacturer says, I can't be in, you know, you shouldn't be using my coil in a place that has formic acid in the air or acetic acid in there. Well, life is life and this happens, right? You can't, so that's why we went to eco to protect that outer surface. But, you know, it is difficult and it's not something you can really catch in the manufacturing process. So like I said, we can catch all these small leaks. If we have a bad braze joint, if we have a bad cap tube, whatever it is, if there's a hole in the product as we're manufacturing it, we can pick up those leaks. Mm -hmm. As these leaks occur out in the field, that's, that's the tough part. Right. Okay. So I have, I have a few more questions, actually. I guess um, we'll stay on the formicary corrosion and copper, and then we'll pivot and wrap up my aluminum microchannel. But trying to like look through my notes here that you've been talking. So most of the coil failures are evaporator failures. I'd say 999 to one, and maybe even, maybe even higher percentage than that. Wow. And then evaporators and condensers are manufactured on the same assembly line, same way. Yep. And they're willing to wipe their hands and say, yep, see, it's the exact same product. It's not our fault. Yeah. And so of those evaporator coil failures, how many are outside in versus inside out? Once again, 999 to one. Oh my God. That's pretty good. Maybe even, maybe even all. I mean, as of 2018, when we went to helium leak detection, I don't think we have any manufacturing defects due to, due to the manufacturing process, no leaks anymore. So back in 15 years ago, we had different leak detection processes, but with helium leak detection, it can pick up so small of leaks. I don't think really anything is getting out into the real world with any type of leak. Right. Right. Fascinating. That's good to know. And then, so these outside in it's 99, 999 to one. Are there multiple mechanisms? Um, is it mostly formicary corrosion? Is it half formicary corrosion? So what we've done is we've taken coils that failed. We sent them off to labs. They do these rinses to them. They pick up whatever trace corrosive uh, elements or contaminants are on there. And um, it seems like everyone is formicary corrosion. Wow. Okay. We probably tested 150 coils, and I think almost 150 were outside-in corrosion, formicary corrosion. We do have other failures, right? So sometimes, like you said, cap tubes, the way they're mounted, they could rub or vibrate. And, you know, you, you can have like physical breaking of copper due to, um, you know, touching, rubbing or whatever it is. Sometimes 
you can have like a discharge line break right from the vibration. But when it's a coil failure, it's, you know, so I can't say all refrigerant failures are forming carry corrosion, but nearly all, if not all evaporator failures are forming carry corrosion. Okay. And then you and many others in parallel separated by multiple walls of NDAs have been engaged for decades. It sounds like in trying to find ways to continue to use copper coils, but prevent formicary corrosion, you had this E-coating. And if I remember right, you talked to me about tin coating. Yes. Uh, has that been eclipsed by E-coating? Tell me about tin coating. So tin coating is a, another process to protect outside from protect from outside in corrosion. We believe it could be an intermediate step with E-coating on top mm. of it before we get to aluminum, right? So it's an intermediate step. It looks like it has very good performance. It's, it's, so in a house or in a location that would fail, let's say in nine months, um, we've had them there for maybe three or four years now and no failure, right? So it appears that it's three to four times, maybe five, maybe even longer than this certain type of formicary corrosion attacking copper and getting through the E-code. Yeah. I'd also say, Christoph, not only is it the refrigerate, not only is it the HVAC people fighting this, don't forget, it's also the refrigerator people fighting this. Oh, because right. when you put your fruit and vegetables in your refrigerator, they're off-gassing. And that off-gassing attacks the copper there also, right? So all of us are fighting this. Yeah. Oh, right. I didn't even think about all the variables there in the cold chain. Yep. Yeah. And the planes, right? There's jet fuel in the air, potentially, that could be in, getting into the intakes. And my goodness. So that was fascinating to think about three to five times longer than formatory corrosion, these other mechanisms. Is there a, like a typical service life before formicary corrosion takes a coil out? Well, I would. so uh, in my house, my house I lived in prior to this one, I bought, as soon as I joined Thermosaur, I bought a dehumidifier, Full retail. I was going to show them what a great, you know, enthusiast I am. I got it installed full retail, and it actually lasted 14 years. And to me, that's how long a product, a refrigeration product, should last—at least 10 years. We do have products that last 10 plus years, 15 years. Our warranty for refrigerant leaks is five years. Maybe it's six years in some circumstances. I think that's a must. But there are certain conditions in certain environments that it leaks before that, and it's you know. I, I wish that weren't the case and we can't get to tin coated and or aluminum coils fast enough. Yeah. And, and okay. So just to, just to wrap that up, I'm not going to jinx myself to tell you how long my coil has been working, but it's, it's long like yours. And um, so my experience, like again, anecdotal, the markets I work in, uh, which are kind of getting to be all over the U S but installers are telling me that the five to seven year range and this is not just for dehumidifier coils, Todd. This is for heat pump coils, and typically more in, in cooling-dominated climates where they're operating in cooling mode. And that's tragic, right? That's short. Yeah. Oh, that's tragic. Uh, yeah. And, and I would think we might have it worst being a dehumidifier because the, real, the only goal of that dehumidifier is to have a wet coil, right? <laughs> there are many applications for HVAC, especially in non-green grass, green grass climates, where you're gonna have a cold coil and not have a lot of condensation. Yeah. You know, much better for the longevity, right? So if you're living in an arid climate, no green grass outside, you're probably much better off, mm -hmm. right? Much mm -hmm. better odds. 
uh, when you get down into you know my you know Florida or tech you know the wet part of Texas Louisiana I think you're going to be worse off because of the amount of moisture right and it's that water going on the coil I'm convinced is what's driving this yeah you're wa we're washing the gas phase contaminants out of the air onto that coil yeah yeah I, the, I was just googling the the formula for formic acid is CH2O2 right so obviously if you have water nearby it's it's going to um yeah and it's interesting you mentioned that the water evaporates leaves a residue and well that's that's the theory right so the water's going to evaporate and we leave behind this corrosive agent right so it's um and that's what's sitting right there and probably a very a much higher concentration than it was in the air yeah okay All right, I'm tempted to pivot. I'm trying, trying to go like shake my brain out if any more questions have happened. I, I did have one. And I remember that I have in my notes here, you said that one third of failures on evaporator coils are occurring at the U-bends. Used to, yeah. Is the other two thirds like generally random or is it? Near the uh, yeah, so I'd say two thirds have been in the fin pack and I'd say a third used to be on the U-bends oh, on both sides. Um, sometimes because one side of the U-bends just because the, the metal was thin from being bent and on the other u-bends out of the, the cap the end caps essentially are brazed in from probably like assembler error or the manufacturer error of not doing a good braze job but in the last 10 years since we've been e-coding the u-bends and the end caps no more problems all the all of the failures are in the fin pack i love it i love it okay um so i think we can pivot and start talking about like well first of all let's highlight right like how quote lucky thermistor has been that they manufactured so many products that were in uh wet climates with so they had wet coils i'm not wet climates wet applications um all the time so lucky you um so you've been i don't want to say beating your head against it you've been thoughtfully thinking through this for years i i can still feel like when you had those coupons and you were hoping to find that there was uh, no corrosion. Um, but so solutions, right? Um, you're not going to just pivot overnight. So are you, are you going to pivot toward aluminum coils via e-coated copper coils for a while? Or, and I, yeah, that's a great you question. You can't say, but yeah, what's your plan? So the smaller microchannel evaporators can overcome distribution concerns of the refrigerant inside because of their small size. Okay. As you get to larger designs, it becomes a bigger issue. So we're probably going to be moving over the smaller evaporator coils to microchannel faster and probably go with tin coating and probably e-coating on the larger coils until we get the distribution of refrigerant issues hammered out. Did you say tin coated and e-coated? I'm confused there. Excuse me. Yeah, I'm for both. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> okay. And smaller, larger? Roughly, what's the differentiator? Like how many? I would say small as 12 inches by 12 inches. It's a pretty small coil, oh, right? So the I thought you meant refrigerant capacity or something. No, like, I mean, it's it's small. And so therefore, oh. poor refrigerant distribution isn't really a big deal because it's physically so small. Right. And, you know, the HVAC guys are probably laughing. Nothing's that small, right? Well, little dehumidifiers, some of those things are that small, right? A little, air, little portable air conditioner might be that small. But when you start getting into... Uh, three foot by five foot coils, refrigeration distribution issues in microchannel do become an issue. 
And uh, we're working with vendors to overcome that. It's solvable, your opinion? We think it's solvable, okay. yes. Yeah. But in the interim, we you're going to it. either either both 10, eco, 10 and e-coated copper coils for the larger ones. Um, Correct. Are there ways to like do accelerated failures like to, because you mentioned like the clock ticks sometimes once every four years to get a data point. That's, that's obviously hard to run a business like that. So we've done that many times over the years. We're currently in testing right now with accelerated life cycle testing. The question is how realistic is it? Right? Because it's right. You're simulating something, but is it what's going on in these houses or in these crawl spaces or in these cannabis grow rooms? So, you know, and if we solve the accelerated life cycle testing failure mode, are we actually solving what's real in the real world? Right. So you always have that that issue. Um, but we're doing we're doing that also. Right. So we, we're, we're addressing it with test cases in real world conditions and we're doing accelerated life cycle testing also. Wow. OK. How about some fancy diagnostic techniques? Anything like that to diagnose what the corrosion is or to diagnose the failure mode? Oh, either. So when we when we diagnose the, when we diagnose the failure mode, essentially, um, you know, we pressurize the coil and put it in a water bath and see what happens. Right. So we take the coil out, we put it in a water bath, and uh, it essentially looks like a jacuzzi, right? Where <laughs> just bubbles start coming up. You're like, whoa, that's amazing. And, and it's also amazing and hard to understand is why one coil might have twenty independent leaks at the same time, all bubbling up. Because you would think wow. that the first leak will cause the refrigerant to come out. Right. And then because the refrigerant's out, it will no longer be making a wet coil. Right. And therefore, you wouldn't have the conditions favorable to continue the corrosion. But unbelievably, we see multiple leaks in one coil. And in my automotive industry experience and fixing stuff there, I never saw that. Um, so I think that's that's interesting. I, that hasn't been fully understood how that's, that's occurring. Fascinating. It may be it may be that the corrosion starts and once it starts, it's going, right? So it's it's in twenty spots on the coil. One of them breaks through. You lose your refrigerant, but the other ones are still going. And by the time we get it back and check it out, they've made it. They've eaten through the copper too. But we haven't proven that. That is so. That's one way, right? So that's um, fascinating. Then. Um, we have other ways um, of testing failure modes. Um, I don't know if I should share those, honestly. Um, okay. But we do have third-party labs that are going through and testing what the failure modes are. I mean, we, we definitely have some, we can, we have a few links here of where we could add links where we could see like cross sections of what the copper looks like. It's, you know, formicarial corrosion is also called ant's nest corrosion because it actually looks like an ant's nest. Hmm. And we can see we've got cross-sectional images of what this looks like. What's that so, mean to you? Or what's that mean? Ants? It looks like an ant's nest, like multiple branches. So, like if you were to look at like an ant farm when you were a kid, and you would see how the ants are like digging through that sand or whatever, that's what the corrosion looks like. It starts up at the top and it goes all over the place. Then finally, it breaks through on the bottom, and that's how the refrigerant leaks through. Got it. So it it doesn't go like in a straight line, and you know I'm guessing it's like following grain boundaries through that copper. Yeah until it gets all the way through. But I mean, it's. Wow. Maybe you've found some copper eating microbes. Some wild. Okay. So long-term you it's, if I remember correctly, you said that 
both Thermostore and many manufacturers are sort of arriving at the same conclusions at the same time. And this conclusion is to go to aluminum microchannel coils. And there's some work to be done right. on refrigerant distribution. Um, what is what is long term? Like, how, when when do you think that I will purchase a Thermostore aluminum microchannel? Um, I would bet by 2030, mm. the entire industry will change, move away from copper coils. You know, there was a lot of time, a decade spent, where we tried copper alloys that we thought would resist corrosion better. You know, you spend five years on that entire project and it ends up, you know, not being good enough. Some of our OEM HVAC people have done that also. I think ultimately we're going to walk away from the devil we know, which is copper, and go over to the devil we don't know and yeah. <laughs> uh, put a code on it and go for it. Bold. Bold move. Yeah, that, that is, um, you know, the law of unexpected consequences uh, being tempted for sure. So I think we can just kind of leave copper coils since they're, they're the coil material of the past. And, and let's talk about aluminum microchannel coils. And just a quick note to listeners, this just in real time, I'm listening like this podcast is dense. So if you find yourself rewinding several times to hear some of these sections over again, that's what I do. Don't be embarrassed of doing that. It's good stuff. Okay. Aluminum microchannel coils. Um, I guess if you could just pretend we're starting a podcast on that, Todd, like, okay. but people brain so, are tired. Like, so what does that mean exactly? <laughs> all right. So basically the microchannel, it's kind of like flat tubes with maybe like eight little discrete uh, refrigerant channels through a, a flat tube, right? So lots of surface area. Um, and then you've got probably 30 of those tubes to make the coil and those are connected on both sides to manifolds, right? So essentially the refrigerant comes in on one side and then it goes through these little tube, these little flattened tubes with eight discrete paths in each tube. And there's probably 15 to 20 tubes, maybe more in bigger coils. And so massive amount of surface area and then in between these tubes, you've got little fins that help improve uh, the heat transfer to the, the the other working fluid, which is air, right? So you've got the refrigerant comes in on a manifold. It gets squeezed through or pressurized through these tubes, the microchannels, and then it comes out on the other side as another manifold and it, and it leaves. Oh. The problem we're seeing on evaporators is getting good distribution um, through those tubes to make it even. Right. So we don't want the first 10 to be fold up and getting good heat transfer and the last 10 not. So really that balance is what's key. Um, and that's what everybody's working on. Love it. I love it. And I'm going to request that. OK, I get it. I get it now. So it's just a different like it's a different um, manufacturing technique as well. It's not just we switch from aluminum to copper. Correct. And aluminum is far more inert. Um, have is there any data points from manufacturers that have switched to aluminum coils sooner out there in the world? Uh, there's not a lot of data points on anything <laughs> failure mode wise. So <laughs> no, not really. So we won't jinx anything and say, I'm sure these will be fine. Yeah. Okay. And ha have you guys been doing any testing? So we've been using microchannel or condensers since 2015 and really had no problems. Well, we've been using, rare. yeah, so condensers never a problem. Um, 
then we've been using them on, uh, we have a special patented design on a three coil evaporator. We've been using those on coils one and three, which are kind of like a pre-cooler and a post heater. Mm -hmm. Microchannel really have had no problems on those when e-coded. Interesting. And, but coil two in that application would have been where most of the condensate. Well, it's still proven fan. Yeah. We're, we're just moving to microchannel for coil two right there uh -huh. in that design. And aluminum is cheaper than copper. It's thermal conductivity. How does it compare? Uh, I'd say you probably are losing 10% performance, but you're getting a lot more surface area. Um, so Si same size for same size, the micro channel is going to give you better performance, um, cost less, weigh less, and use less refrigerant charge. Mm -hmm. So that's why, I mean, evolution is on its side, right? I mean, it's, it's the dinosaur out there is tube and fin, right? And here's a micro channel coming up with better in every way. Refrigerant distribution and shedding water, we got to figure out those issues. They've been mostly figured out. And there's, you know, still a little bit of work to do, but it's all in line of sight to make it happen. How I assume there, you could be thinking about some sort of coatings that help water shedding. Well, it's really um, if you have a vertical coil in with a tube and fin, the tubes actually are vertical, so the water can just run right down. Oh. It. In microchannel, the tubes are actually horizontal. And the tubes would stop the water flow at each at each one of those 20 horizontal tubes. So maybe if you tilt it, maybe if you rotate the coil 90 degrees, now the tubes are not horizontal. Now they're vertical, so they can run down. But they still maybe in, impact a little bit on the fins. So the fin and the tube relationship on microchannel is not conducive to having water drip right. down. On tube and fin, it's extremely conducive to doing okay. that. Okay, that's fascinating. I'm getting fancy coatings, and you're just thinking aligned with gravity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Uh, I think that that is a good place to stop. I, honestly, we could start a new podcast about uh, episode, excuse me, about microchannel evaporator coils. But uh, we've been at it for a while, and I think people's brains would need to um, decompress before going there. So, Todd, I leave it to you. Any any final thoughts? Um, well, this is about 15 years of uh, hard knocks, right? It's summarized in a, an hour and a half. So, uh, you know, best of luck to everybody. If you, uh, you know, you can reach out to me if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Yeah. Well, Todd, from the heart, man, thank you very much for sharing this with our audience. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you.